since it's been uh, a month since we were last in the confession, which is hard to believe, but it is it is true. Uh, this is the it was four Wednesdays ago when we last looked at this. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to do a, a basic review. Uh, first of all, this chapter deals with uh, effectual calling, and we're going to talk uh, a bit at the front end tonight about what effectual calling is. Uh, what effectual calling is, and I've got here in my notes from the shorter catechism. Uh, one definition of effectual calling. Uh, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby, so this is what happens in this work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. Uh, so a couple of important things to note about the effectual call is it's God who does it. It is the power of God's Spirit that makes this call and makes it to use the, the old English effectual, which just means effective. It means it, it, it cannot, it does not fail, and it does these things. First, it convinces us of our sin and misery. Um, so if you're talking to somebody and they claim to be a follower of Jesus and there is... Um, no sign whatsoever that they are concerned about sin or that they have known the, the, the freedom and the release of guilt from their sin, now that's a very strong indicator that, that perhaps they, they aren't Christians. Perhaps they have not received this effectual calling because that's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said, and I think it's John 15, when he's talking about the work that the Holy Spirit will come to do, that he will convict the world of sin concerning Christ. Meaning, he, <clears throat> the first thing he does is he makes us aware of our need for a Savior. The second thing that happens is our minds are enlightened. Specifically, the larger catechism in question 67 would develop this answer a little bit. Our minds are enlightened um, in the knowledge of Christ. That is to say, that not only are we aware <clears throat> of the fact that we are sinners, that we do stand justly condemned before God, but we also see clearly the way of salvation is found in Christ alone. And then the third thing uh, that this effectual call does is it renews our wills. That is to say, it takes our wills that were up to that point slaves to sin and renews them, sets them free so that not only do we see that we are a sinner, not only do we see the way of salvation, but we actually want it. We pursue it. Um, I'll talk about him a, a little bit more later, and I've, I've shared with some of you guys. Uh, do be praying for my brother-in-law. Uh, he was raised in the church. He was raised in a good Christian home. He knows the Bible. He knows what it says about sin. He knows what it says about the way of salvation, and he has no desire for it. He does not want it. I, I believe that he not only knows the, the facts of what we believe, I believe he knows that it's true but he does not want it. And so that, that's, a, that's a very troubling sign. A Christian wants to be drawn closer to God, wants to know the Lord, wants to worship him, wants to serve him, wants to do these things. Not perfectly, not all day, every day, all the time. That's a good goal, but a, a basic desire, inclination in that direction. Uh, and so where, where there's not a renewed will that wants to pursue these things, that's also a, a, a troublesome thing. And then it says, and... So the result of doing those, those things is he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. Apart from this work of God's spirit, 
we would not be convinced of the way of salvation. And a part of this work of God's Spirit, we would not embrace Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. But the one who has received this effectual call embraces him, desires to be with him. That is what effectual calling is. Now, it's been a month. I understand. Does anybody remember we talked about how this call is made? How the call of God is made. It's in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 10, paragraph 1 of the confession. If you want to <coughs> look through and see, how does the confession say that this effectual call is made? Andrew? By word and spirit. By his word and spirit. What is meant by that, Andrew? So, like, he, by the Bible and the Holy Spirit? Right. So, what happens on, on any given Sunday uh, in the sanctuary is there are, I don't know, two to three hundred people gathered in the sanctuary. Dr. Phillips or myself or Pastor Brenning and somebody preaches God's word. And everybody in there hears it because there's microphones and we project and it's a good room with good acoustics. It's heard. But not necessarily everybody hears effectually, meaning without with the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling them to really not just hear it with their ears, but to take it in, to soak it in, and to be grown thereby. So the effectual calling is made by this combination of the power of the Word of God preached and the power of His Holy Spirit accompanying that preaching, or in, in some cases, just the reading of God's Word. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, who's a, a great uh, church uh, father, um, most of you guys, not most, some of you guys, several of you guys have probably had to read Confessions. Is that a signed reading at GCA, I think? Yeah. God bless y'all. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, get it. It's amazing. Um, but, but he was converted in the reading of Romans chapter 10, where it says, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And in that moment, he realized he had not ever done that. He had been making provision for the flesh his whole life, despite the fact that he'd been raised in the church and he was converted. Uh, other things went into that, but that was the pivotal turning point. So the call is made by the combination of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are a bunch of examples of this in Scripture. Um, did we talk last time about Paul and his conversion on Damascus Road? We did? All right. Well, then we will move on. Did we talk about Lydia in Acts 16? Does anybody even remember who Lydia is? Lydia is awesome. Acts 16, Lydia uh, is leading this, this small Bible study prayer meeting for ladies in the town of Philippi. And uh, would somebody pre please read for us Acts 16, verses 13 to 14. Acts 16, verses 13 to 14. Who's got it? Mr. Johnson? 16, 13, and 14. Yeah. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place for prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Thank you. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. All right. Uh, read the next verse, too. Sorry. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right. So we've got this woman, Lydia, who's gathered with, with presumably other ladies, but it may have been others too. Um, and they're praying to the Lord. They're in some manner, they're, 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 what they would have been called as a social class at that time would have been God-fearers. Um, a God-fearer is somebody in uh, the early days of the church that is, um, they're Gentile, ethnically speaking. She's from Thyatira. She's not from Judea. She's not from Palestine. She's not from anywhere like that. She's from Thyatira. But she's come to the conclusion that uh, there is a single true and living God, and it's probably the God of Abraham. And so she's doing her best to follow him. And that's good. But it takes the act of the Holy Spirit to open her heart that she would actually take in and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear what Paul is saying and so be converted. That's a picture of effectual calling. Um, another one is, uh, is Timothy. And I think we did talk about this last time, but it's worth talking about again because uh, Timothy's awesome and not just Timothy Wynn, although we like him too. Uh, would somebody please read for us 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Second Timothy chapter three verses ten to thirteen fifteen. Who's got it? Mr. Malk. Yep. You, however, knew all about know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, um, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Pause. All right, so Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got all of this experience. You know who I am. You know what I've been through. You know what I teach. But what is it that made the difference in his life? Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become believed, conceived, and have become convinced of. Okay, what's he, what's he believed, what's he become convinced of? Keep going. Because you know these from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so what Paul is saying is, Timothy... Uh, you, you know me, you know all that's gone on in my life, you know all that I've been called to do, you know all I've taught you, and yet what, what made the difference, what I want you to continue in above all else, is the scriptures that you've been raised with from the time you were a child. The power of the word of God, accompanied by the spirit of God, is, is what works for effectual calling, is what causes people to be saved. And there's just one last example of this, this is not in your Bibles, um, but it's the, the testimony of A.A. Of a. Hodge, who was an old seminary professor in the 1800s. And he describes his own Christian conversion this way. And I, I hope that this is the testimony for all of you. Uh, your parents hope this is the testimony for all of you. I hope it's the testimony of my own kids. He says, I was born in a Christian family and in a Christian church. Parents and friends lived before me from the beginning, lives which in strong contrast with the character of the surrounding community were unmistakably supernatural. So he's saying, I grew up in a Christian community. 
I also saw the outside world, and there was something that even from the time I was a child, I knew was different about my family and my community from everybody else. Through the subsequent years, I have been, I have seen innumerable individuals of many nationalities whose lives and deaths, in spite of all inconsistencies, possessed the same supernatural character. He's saying, despite the fact that I've, I, that these people that I've met as an adult aren't from the town I'm from, didn't grow up in the church that I grew up in, I see the same supernatural work at work in them. That same thing that I saw that differentiated my family from everyone else I see in them. By the way, that's also why I'm a big proponent of you guys sticking around and paying attention to like the missions moment and things like that on Wednesday nights. is so that you would see that God is doing his work just like he does here all over the world. He's saying, I, I saw it from different nationalities, all different kinds of people whose entire lives were marked by the same supernatural character goes on, and all these referred the mystery of their lives to the fact of an incarnation of God, 1800, or in our case, 2,000 years ago, and to the subsequent indwelling of a divine person in their hearts, the history of this stupendous event, and all the promises of this indwelling I found recorded in a book, itself giving whenever and wherever believingly received equal evidence of supernatural origin and power. He's saying, this book made the difference for my family, made the difference for families in China, Africa, in England, and France, and wherever else you want to go. This book has had that same kind of impact all over the world as it's taught with the accompanied power of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. He's talking about the effectual calling, and he's seen it his whole life. So that's what effectual calling is. That's what we talked about about a month ago. That recap having been completed, do we have questions on it before I move on to our main topic for tonight, which is paragraphs three and four? Because questions, or paragraphs three and four, are going to deal with the most common questions about this. I call them the whatabouts. So we'll move on into those. Uh, Paragraphs three and four uh, deal with, uh, again, that's the normative way that God works. Paragraphs 3 and 4 deal with the whatabouts. The first in paragraph 3 is about what about infants who die in infancy or those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And then in paragraph 4 we'll see uh, about those who do not profess to be Christians or those who have walked away from Christ. Uh, First of all, uh, infants who die in infancy. This is again chapter 10, paragraph 3. I'll read this for us. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are uncapable, we would say incapable, it means the same thing, of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Um, This is a very carefully worded statement. Um, the Westminster Assembly actually met over the course of about 10 years. And and we have five volumes of the minutes of those meetings, some 3,200 pages. Does anyone know what the phrase minutes of a meeting means? Okay, Uh, Jack, tell us. Um, It's like when you're reading the minutes, you're recording, um, you're relaying what's happened uh, over the meeting. It's like... um, 
No, that's exactly uh, at, at two thirty we uh, discussed the budget for this project and two forty five we reached a consensus. Exactly right. Yeah, so we've got three thousand pages worth of the minutes of the meeting of the Westminster Assembly, and I say that to say they didn't knock this thing out in a month. And they had to be very careful. And that, that care is maybe nowhere more evidence than in this paragraph. So who are we dealing with in this paragraph? First and foremost, we're dealing with um, not all infants, not every infant, but elect infants, and specifically elect infants who die in infancy, as well as those who are incapable of responding to the word. What they mean by that is those who are mentally handicapped. Those who are uh, who are unable to ordinarily respond to the ministry of God's word. So, so what happens with those elect ones? The confession is very clear. Those elect ones are regenerated, saved by Christ through the Spirit. Okay, but you just said the whole thing has to be the, the, the word of God and the Spirit of God. They they hear the preaching, they don't understand. Um, I, I guarantee you that Lynn Early has no idea what's going on with Daddy's preaching. She just knows that part of that robe feels one way and part of it feels the other way, and that's interesting. But she 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 doesn't understand. So how is it possible that an infant who dies in infancy can be saved? The confession says, and they are correct about this, that the Holy Spirit is free to work uh, whenever, wherever, and however he pleaseth. There are normal means of salvation, the preaching of God's word, the prayers of God's people. But the Spirit of God is not constrained to those norms. Does this make sense? The Spirit of God can work however he wants. We don't get to presume that he'll work any way we desire. We know he said he does this, but he does others. Yes? Is this be the same for miscarriages? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Any not developed enough person, whatever stage that is. Okay. Um, whether they're whether they're born and die early or or miscarriage, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, now there are a couple of different. Well, first of all, let me just prove to you that this is a biblical category. I'm going to show you that this is a biblical category. Flip over in your Bible to First Second Samuel chapter twelve. Second Samuel chapter twelve. Uh, this is, of course, after uh, David's um, great sin with Bathsheba, right? He takes um, Uriah the Hittite, who's one of his like most loyal subjects. He commits adultery with his wife, and then he has Uriah the Hittite killed in battle on purpose to cover up his other sin, like really wicked, horrible stuff. And God, out of his free grace forgives David for his sin when David repents, and yet there is still a temporal consequence. David's not going to hell, but there will be ripple effects for this sin for the rest of his life. And one of them is that the child who is the product of that rape, that, 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 that adultery, dies. And yet, God has also made clear that children are not punished for the sins of their parents. The Bible is very clear about this elsewhere. They're affected by the sins of their parents. They reap some of the consequences of those sins, but they're not punished for them. And so David, when he finds out that his child is born and is ill, he begins fasting and 
praying and interceding and begging. And then shortly thereafter, a few days later, he finds out that his child has died. And he gets up, he cleans himself, and he gets back to business, as it were. And they ask him, what in the world's going on here? And David said in verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. This is the really important part. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not come to me. David understood that his child had gone to be with the Lord. His child was elect. His child was called of the Lord. Did not suffer for David's sin. So there is a category of person who's called of God in a way that doesn't fit our normative pattern. There are some people who will tell you that every single infant who dies in infancy is elect. There are other people who will tell you only infants of believers who die in infancy are elect. There are other people who will take a different view. I'm inclined to believe the first one. The Bible doesn't say explicitly. But the Bible does give us clear testimony to the character of our God, who is gracious and long-suffering and merciful and delights to show mercy. So I believe that because the category exists, and because our God is a pitying protecting, providing for God who delights to do such things, that's where I land. Um, But the confession says that they can be and are saved. Um, And so we take great comfort in that. Questions before I move on to paragraph four? Okay. I know that's a heavy one. But it's good to know what the Bible teaches about these things because it is a source of great comfort. All right, those who do not come to Christ or those who walk away from Christ. Others, not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess. And to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. So this is the other big what about. What about... This person I know, who, yet they haven't come to Christ, but they order their life really well according to the natural law. They're basically a good person. Or they they haven't come to Christ, but they they are very devout at this other religion that kind of echoes the Bible's morality a little bit. What What about them? And the confession makes very plain that um, there is only one way of salvation. The Bible also makes this very plain. 
Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. To argue otherwise is to commit one of two errors. One is to undermine or or misunderstand the heinousness of sin. Um, Sin is so offensive, so egregious, so wrong that it required the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to atone for it. There is no other payment that will work. There is no other payment that will overturn it. No other payment that will satisfy divine justice. And it's also to miss the second error that to think otherwise would, would, would commit is to undermine or misunderstand God's holiness, God's perfection. Because he is a holy and perfect and righteous God, he can only accept holy and perfect and righteous uh, obedience. But he's also a kind, generous, and loving God, and so he has made a way that is freely offered to all to receive that obedience of Christ credited to them. Um, I think often, let's look at just two passages real quick. Well, for the sake of time, let's look at one. Matthew 26, 36 to 44. This is maybe the most human picture of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. I'm just going to read this for us. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the death. Remain here and watch with me. And I'm going a little further. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came back to, to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. What did he say? If it is possible, if there is some other way for your people to be saved, Let it be. But the cup didn't pass because there is no other way. It is not by our obedience. It is not by our righteousness. It's not by our character. It's not by our general disposition. It is because of the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And to tell people otherwise is to co-sign them to hell. Tell people otherwise is the most hateful thing we could possibly do. To give them assurance in something else about them. 
That's what the confession means when it says it's a pernicious error. That's a, 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 a dangerously deceptive thing to say because it's endangering them. So I want to end on this. Given that there is only one way of salvation, and that's through the power of God's Spirit, what are we to do for our own lost loved ones? I mentioned my brother-in-law earlier. I'm sure you guys have family and friends as well. What do we do? We do three things for them. First of all, we pray. We pray a lot. We pray for years, but we pray. We remember the story that Jesus told about the persistent widow in Luke 18 who knocked on the judge's door every day and eventually he gave her what she wanted just to get rid of her. And he says, how much more will the righteous father do for you? Um, There are stories in our own church of people who have been prayed for for years and have eventually come to know the Lord. Um, It's public knowledge, so I I feel comfortable sharing this. Uh, Leslie Martin, who comes with us on the beach trip every year, and we we love her dearly. Her mother did not know the Lord until like a week before she died. Leslie spent decades praying for her mom with her sisters. And the Lord was pleased to grant that. You have no idea what the Lord will do through your prayers. The second thing we do is we talk with them about Jesus, not in an obnoxious way, not in a knee-jerk, make-it-fit-in-the-conversation way, but when they ask how you're doing. I'm really stressed about A, B, C, and D, and I know you all all have things to plug those variables in with, but... I know that the Lord is gracious and kind. He's in, he's in control and will get me through it. Or, you know, some of you guys are going to graduate high school and you're going to get cards congratulating you or phone calls congratulating you from people who don't believe in the Lord. That's the chance to say, thank you so much. I'm so grateful the Lord has brought me thus far. It doesn't have to be a full orb gospel presentation, but just living unashamedly grateful for the work of God in your life is a good, clear, faithful testimony to these people. And then the third thing that we do, so we pray for them, we live unashamedly Christian lives before them, invite them to church. Not every week that's going to get annoying and drive them away, but find times, find occasions, right? Um, uh, I'm singing in the youth choir this Sunday. I'd really appreciate it if you could come and, and, and see and hear, or my church is having a special service for Christmas Eve, come and hear, or my, you know, what, find, find opportunities to do that, um, Because ultimately you don't know what means God will use to effectually call them. But you know the means that he will use. You know the means that he does use. He normally uses. You don't know who he has elected. But you do know who he has put in your life. So we seek to see those saved and come to know the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your sovereignty and salvation. Thank you for your love and your pity for your people. I pray for my dear young friends, all of whom I'm sure know those and care about those who do not know you. I pray, Father, that you would lay burdens on their hearts, that they might find ways to share Jesus with them. And Lord, that you'd be pleased to grant those prayers, that you'd be pleased to answer those prayers for the sake of the glory of your son, Jesus, the only Savior, the only mediator between God and men, in whose name we pray. Amen.